Our scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. This is found on page 816, the Pew Bible. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Sorry, John. <laughs> uh, thank you, Eleanor. Thanks, Dennis, John. Um, Really good to see each one of you here this morning. My name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus, and really delighted that each of you have come uh, this morning to celebrate together and to learn and, uh, and rejoice um, together. So uh, before we look at this text that uh, Eleanor read for us this morning, I want to take a moment and just even in a, in a response to that text that God is done this work of revealing, ask him to continue to reveal himself to us as we study this passage, that acknowledging that none of us on our own uh, can know and truly know God without his taking initiative. So let's pray and ask that he would do that. Now, Father in heaven, we're grateful that you don't hide yourself, that you've spoken to us in nature, um, as Psalm 19 says, but supremely in your word and the treasure that is the Bible. So I pray now that your spirit um, we continue to reveal the Son uh, to us and that we would glorify the Father uh, as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the last two weeks that uh, our new baby, Isla, has been home with us, there have been lots of changes happening in our house. Um, many of them really good and fun. And one of my favorite is that I now get to be the one to put our older daughter, Lucy, to bed each night. And Lucy's two and a half, and it's been a really fun thing for us to do uh, our bedtime routine together. And uh, each night we read stories together. Some of our current favorites are, are Sleep Like a Tiger and Extra Yarn, and This Moose Belongs to Me. Um, I like that one in particular. So if you're looking for some good uh, bedtime reading, uh, you can check those out. Um, and after we, we read some storybooks together, then, then we pray together, and uh, we sing, I always let her sing, we sing three songs. Um, it's usually one of these, Mary Had a Little Lamb, um, Jesus Loves You, Baba Black Sheep, or Amazing Grace. So we pick from that little selection of songs. And then finally, after we've sung and read, I pile her and somewhere between 20 and 30 stuffed animals and beanie babies into her bed with her. And I give her a hug and a kiss and tell her good night. And then I walk out. And usually, though, a few minutes uh, after I walk out of the room, I hear a little voice saying, Daddy? Daddy? It gets a little bit louder. Daddy? And then I'll pop, poke my head in and say, Daddy, I need something. <laughs> what do you need, honey? <laughs> and she looks around. And the, it's always kind of dark in the room at that point. She's always like looking around at the floor. And she doesn't know. And she says, I need something. Well, what do you need? I need something else. <laughs> What? What do you need? Something else. And here's the thing. She doesn't know what, she certainly doesn't need any more stuffed animals. She doesn't know what she needs or what she wants, but she already has this sense that there's something missing, that she just needs something else. 
that will help her fall asleep or help her be content. And, and usually a hug from dad in that moment will, will do. Um, but it, it does tug at my heart to hear her longing already, wishing, hoping, hoping for something else. Something that will give a sense of completion or rest or satisfaction or contentment. Something that will help her to fall asleep. We all have that sense, don't we? And whether we're two and a half or we're 22 or 82, that, that we need something, that we need something else. And what we find in this passage is that Jesus says what we really need, that something else that we're really longing for, that we've really been craving all this time, is this. Jesus says this is the something else that we've been longing for, that we've been hoping for, that we've been wanting, <laughs> that this is the antiquated agricultural tool you've always wanted. Jesus says this, this is what you need. And we say, really, Jesus? This? <laughs> this is the something else that, that I've always wanted? I, I didn't think that was what I wanted. Um, Yes, Jesus says, this is the picture, this is the image, the metaphor that shows you the lay to the life that you long to live, that slowly over time you will find rest and contentment and wholeness, the true something else that you've longed for, that this is what you were made for. This is really the big message of the whole book of Matthew that we've been looking at together. The, The book of Matthew in the New Testament is a gospel. Um, and gospels are autobiographies, they're biographies, they're um, stories, they're theological interpretations, life-changing biographies of Jesus. And the gospels, and first and foremost, they declare a message, and and not just any message, a message the gospels claim to proclaim the message, the message about a God who's restoring a world full of injustice, and a people who have rebelled against him and abandoned him. But you see, they're not merely meant at giving us information. Rather, the Gospels do give us vital information, but they're aimed at formation, at reformation. And a reading of the Gospels is supposed to change us. They call for a response. And in this section of the Gospel of Matthew, we're seeing that some people respond positively. Other people respond with indifference to Jesus. Others reject him. And in chapter 10 of Matthew, Jesus was preparing some of his key followers for just those variety of responses. And at the end of that chapter, he introduces an image of the cross as this sort of paradoxical key to life. This paradoxical metaphor of the cross that that the only way to life is through death, that the only way you can find your life is to lose it. And here at the end of Matthew chapter 11, Jesus gives us another incredibly paradoxical metaphor, the metaphor of the yoke. This. And he says, this picture This picture that in most cases was one of slavery and oppression, of hard work, of toil. Jesus now says this is an image, a metaphor of freedom, of liberation, of rest. 
Now, most people recognize the, the cross as a Christian symbol, right? Any Christian church has a, has a cross in it somewhere, right? Or on the door or on the steeple somewhere. They're all over this building in the stained glass. But, but few of us probably look at a yoke. This is a great Christian symbol that we all know and love. Um, and this isn't just like kind of a Midwestern thing, you know. Oh, it's, we have a history of, of cattle here in Kansas City, so we like a yoke. Now, Jesus is using this paradoxical image to show us the path to rest and life. You see, when a farmer had an, an older ox that was getting ready to, to be retired, he would go to a carpenter in the first century and, and make a yoke, and he would find the younger oxen, and they would design this yoke so that it would, it would fit in perfectly, these, these two oxen, and they would be yoked together. And that younger oxen would learn how to plow the field, to pull, to do the work from the older oxen together in the yoke. This is a training instrument. And in most cases, when the Bible uses the metaphor of the yoke, especially in the Old Testament, it's it's a negative picture. It's, It's a picture of enslavement and toil, something that you'd want to avoid at all costs. But Jesus takes this and transforms it into a picture, just like he did with the cross. He takes the cross that is a picture of torture and death, and he transforms it into a a pathway, a picture of true life. In the same way, he transforms the yoke, a picture of slavery and toil, to a picture of freedom and rest. I'm going to set this down because Jesus' yoke is easy and light, but this one is not. Um, I'm going to go ahead and set that back down. And what we're going to see this morning as we look at these verses is that first we're going to see what keeps us out of the yoke. Second, we're going to see who invites us in to the yoke. And then finally, we're going to see how we enter the yoke. So what keeps us out? Who invites us in? And then lastly, how we enter. And first, Jesus describes in verses 25 and 26 what keeps us out of the yoke. So look at those verses again in your Bible, or if you grab one of the pew Bibles, it's on page 816 again. And um, also, if you uh, go to Bible.com on the address that's listed here, you can actually pull up the passage as well as the notes and quotes from the, the sermon, the announcements. And if you're using the Version Bible app, you just look for Christ Community um, Brookside. You can pull those up and have them in front of you. Um, so however you're looking at it, look at this text again, Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. And this is what Matthew records. He says, At this time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This was your gracious will. So what is it that keeps us out of the yoke? Jesus says here in verses 25 and 26, the thing that keeps us out of the yoke is pride. It's the greatest barrier to us entering the yoke and finding rest and joy that Jesus promises is our own pride, a pride that says, I don't need this, um, that that I'm fine, that that's not really something that's for me. A pride that says that if, if this is what it really means to follow Jesus, then I'm, then I'm out. Because you see, like the cross, this image of the yoke, this is not something that we want at first. This isn't something that we're looking for, craving, right? So you mean Jesus, in order to follow you, to give up my life, 
means that, that I have to die to myself. That in order to follow you, to, to come after you, to find my life, to find true joy and happiness, I have to entrust everything to you, to let you literally speak into every dimension and aspect of your life. Because that's what the picture of the yoke is. That Jesus, when we step into the yoke with him, is now given free reign to teach us, to train us, to guide us in every dimension of life. See, no one wants these things. No one wants crosses and yokes on their own. It's not what we find ourselves looking for. It's not what we find ourselves craving. And in fact, the stunning thing that Jesus says here is that the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, and and again, that that statement is really key to recognize here because Christians believe fundamentally that, that God is triune, that he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three distinct and equal divine persons, So Jesus here is praying to his Father, the Father who is fully God, Jesus who is fully God, speaking to God. It says the Father has hidden these things. These things meaning the the significance of Jesus' message and his actions. It says the Father has hidden these things from the wise and understanding. The people who are wise in their own eyes, the people who think they understand, this has been hidden from them, and instead it's been revealed to the little children. And that idea of little children, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, um, can certainly refer to actual little children, but really it speaks of the vulnerable, those of any age who know their need and who willingly receive what Jesus offers. They're humble, they're gentle, and it takes humility and gentleness to know Jesus because he is humble and gentle. In in fact, it takes humility and gentleness to know any other person, to truly know them. Because if you are going to truly know any other person, you, you have to humbly ask them questions and genuinely and humbly listen to their responses. You you can't always be thinking about what you're gonna say next or or how you'll respond. You see, humility is absolutely vital to knowing another human being, but it's supremely necessary to knowing God. But it isn't humility alone that's necessary for us to know God. Because he must take the initiative to reveal himself to us. That's what what Jesus' point here is in this short prayer that he has. We cannot know God unless he makes himself known to us. It's the only way. You see, one of the many implications of this reality that God must reveal himself to us is that it removes any kind of pride from the heart of someone who is genuinely a Christian who who follows Christ. And this morning, if you're here and you're still exploring your faith, maybe you came with a family member or a friend invited you and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian yet, Um, this is a great opportunity to to remind the people who are in your life who are Christians, um, to remind them that that, that they are Christians only because God has revealed him to themselves. So if you're here and your Christian friend or family member, they start seeming a little bit uh, prideful, a little bit arrogant, maybe a little bit superior about their faith, just remind them, remember what the pastor said, just remind them that, that if you're really a Christian, then you have to believe deep down that the only reason that's true is that God has revealed this to you, that it isn't because of how smart you are, how wise you are, how spiritual you are, or or whatever you were. It's only because God in his grace and mercy took hold of you when you didn't want anything to do with him. 
So there's no room for arrogance there. There's, there's no room for pride. If you're a Christian, it's only because God has revealed himself to you, not, not because of anything that, that you brought. As New Testament scholar D.A. Carson points out, the contrast Jesus is drawing is between those who are self-sufficient and deem themselves wise and those who are dependent and love to be taught. The contrast is between those who are, who are self-sufficient and deem themselves wise and those who are dependent and love to be taught. And what we find as we read on is that the revealing that takes place in one's life when, when one becomes a Christian is, is not just the revealing of some sort of spiritual techniques or, or a noble path or some pillars or, or secret knowledge. No, what was revealed to us is a person the person of Jesus. You see, the difference between Christianity and, and every other religion in the world, every other system of belief, is that in every other religion, the prophet, the, the teacher, the founders, they, they point away from themselves and tell us the way to, to get to God, to work to him, to have a relationship with him, to get to God or to nirvana or enlightenment or paradise or, or whatever it might be. But in Christianity, Jesus points to himself and invites us to come to him. He says, I am God, come to you, come for you. I am paradise. I am the rescue. I am enlightenment. See, every other religion tells you how to get to God. Jesus in Christianity comes and declares that I am God, come to rescue you. And he is the one who invites us. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself made flesh, come to live with us, is the one who invites us into the yoke. Listen to how Jesus continues in verse 27. He says, All of these things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So here Jesus is saying that he and the Father are one. And again, this is essential core Christian teaching, the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, if you want to know God, then you have to know me. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 27. I, I can't state it any more plainly or clearly than that. It, Jesus says, if you want to know God, then you have to know me. It's the only way. Do you get the magnitude of, of that claim that Jesus is making here? Jesus is saying, the only way to truly know God is to know me. There is no other way to know the Father except to know the Son. That's not what Christians say. That's not what I say. That's what, that's what Jesus says. The only way to know God is to know me. And we'll never know God exhaustively, but we can know him truly, but only in and through Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, that may sound exclusive. It may sound just 
too good to be true. It may sound unbelievable. It may just sound completely implausible. But let me tell you why I think we can't avoid at least checking out if this claim is true. No, no matter where you're at this morning, whether you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time or if you're completely skeptical about all of this, let me tell you why I think you can't avoid at least doing the basic work to try to understand if what Jesus says may actually be true. And it comes down to two things. First, the magnitude, the authority of the person who's making the claim, who's making the invitation. And then secondly, the actual magnitude of the claim itself. So the authority of the person making it, and then the magnitude of the claim itself. So let me see if I can give a a, kind of a picture to help this come home. So imagine tomorrow you're coming home from work, and you get the mail out of the mailbox, and you're flipping through the the stack, and there's the the catalogs and the junk mail and the flyers, and then you see a white envelope. It catches your eye, and in the return address spot there up in the upper left-hand corner, there's three big letters, I-R-S. And stamped across the front of the envelope is, is open immediately, important tax documents. So you open the document up and you find a letter and a statement there that says there was an error in filing your tax return and your refund is now actually tens of thousands of dollars more than what you expected. Now, a lot of things probably go through your mind in that moment. Wait, is this a scam? Is this too good to be true? Um, how could this be? I didn't even actually make that much money that they're saying I'm getting back. How can this be right? But because it's the IRS making the claim, because of the authority of the one making the claim, you have to at least investigate, right? Because if you got some kind of letter like that, but it was on, you know, TurboTax stationery or from H&R Block, you're thinking, oh, this is just some kind of like an advertising thing. But because this is coming from the IRS, you've got to at least check it out because of the authority of the one making the claim. But second, the the magnitude of the claim compels you as well, the magnitude of the invitation. Because if if the letter said your refund was $8 more than what you had expected, I mean, maybe you'd track it down, maybe you wouldn't. I mean, eight bucks is eight bucks, right? But at the end of the day, it's like that probably gets tossed in the you know, the inbox there in the house, and you maybe check it out, maybe you don't, but you're, you're no urgency. It's $8. But the magnitude of what is on offer here of tens of thousands of dollars more than what you expected compels you to, as soon as you can, to contact and find it. Can this be true? So see, here in verse 27, we see the authority of Jesus, the one who's making the claim. All through the Gospel of Matthew, if you've been with us, we've been getting to learn to know who Jesus is, this one who has authority over the wind and the waves, who teaches with authority like no one else. And and again, whether or not you're a Christian, whether you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, uh, there's no denying that Jesus has been one of the most influential people who has ever lived And so when he makes a claim, it's worth at least listening because of the authority, but then also what he offers, the magnitude of what he promises. And we see it in verses 28 and 30, the, the magnitude of what he's inviting us to. So listen to what he invites us to in verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 
My yoke is easy, Jesus says. My burden is light. Come to me is the invitation. We sang that earlier. Come to me, Jesus says. This is the great invitation. The greatest invitation any of us will ever receive. Not only because of who invites, but because of what he invites us to. And first, notice who Jesus invites. He invites all who labor and are heavy laden. And in particular, Jesus is speaking about all who are weary and heavy laden by the oppressive burden of trying to be and achieve enough to feel whole, to feel content, to to feel satisfied, who are exhausted in their efforts to finally quiet that voice that has been in our hearts and our minds since we were two years old that says, I need something. I need something else. You see, we live in a a Pinterest and Instagram world where expectations always seem unattainable and unreachable, whether that is planning the perfect, I tried super hard not to make it look like I tried super hard, shabby chic hipster wedding, (laughs) or if it's just taking the coolest picture of, of your breakfast at that new place that nobody knows about yet that serves sort of those gourmet ramen noodle inspired waffles once every Tuesday after a full moon in the West West Bottoms. Um... Oh, you, you haven't heard of the West West Bottoms? Yeah, I, I didn't think you guys looked cool enough to know about that neighborhood. Okay, I just made that up. There's not really a West West Bottoms. Um, maybe there is. I don't know. But some of you were worried when I said there was and you hadn't heard of it. And what Jesus offers to those who are weary and heavy laden with those burdens of, of trying to be enough, of trying to fit in, of trying to quiet that voice that says, I need something else. Jesus offers is rest, true rest, and and not just rest in the future someday. And Jesus does promise that. In the book of Hebrews, there's this promise of this eternal rest that's coming. But Jesus also promises that rest now. Rest at the deepest level. And and next week, we're actually going to spend the whole sermon looking in depth at what real rest is and how we find it and how we learn to experience it in the yoke with Jesus. But let me just say here, the rest that Jesus is talking about isn't the rest of inactivity necessarily, but of relief, of peace, of wholeness. See, Matthew understood that the yoke of Jesus was not about performing some moral duty that aligned with a code, but rather a pathway of of apprenticeship devoted to a person. We're not yoked to a system or a process or a religion. We're We're yoked to a person. And the yoke is where Jesus joins us to himself in such a way that we learn from him, not simply by hearing and listening, but by observing and imitating like that of an apprentice. Again, Jesus tells us that his yoke is easy. My burden is light. And that word translated easy, it's, it's from a Greek word that sometimes is translated good or kind, but it literally means to furnish what is needed. It has this idea of being what's just right, what's sort of custom fit. In other words, the yoke that Jesus invites us to, this yoke that he calls us into, it's well-made, it's suited, it's tailor-made just for us. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy in the yoke with Jesus, but it's it's not going to be harsh or ill-fitted. It's going to be designed uniquely for us. 
Again, the, the yoke isn't something that Jesus imposes on us or forces upon us and says, here, take this. It's rather something that he invites us into with him. He carries it with us. It's a yoke he wears with us. In, in a sense, it's like a well-fitted backpack that, that allows you to carry way more gear, way more comfortably than you ever could without it. This yoke, it's not an, an imposition. It's an invitation. It, it, Jesus is not inviting us into another sort of to-do list religion. He's inviting us uh, to, to himself, to know him, to know a person. He's not just inviting us either to give some kind of just mere intellectual assent to who he is, as if following Jesus were, were about nothing more than just reading the Jesus Christ Wikipedia page and saying, yep, I agree with that, and then moving on. No, it's about stepping into this with him to learn, to train. This is essentially a training instrument. Jesus is inviting us into a yoke to find rest, but not simply inactivity or passivity, but a rest that brings wholeness, completion, what our hearts are truly longing for. It is a rest that can only be found in being yoked with Christ in such a way that we begin to live the life that we've always longed to live. It begins to close the gap between the life that we experience, the life that we live, and the life that we long to live. So given all this, what are some next steps to entering the yoke? How does this actually work? Well, here are three things, at least, to keep in mind as, as we think about how to enter the yoke. First, humble yourself. Because remember, it's not weariness and weakness that keep you out of the yoke. <laughs> Those are actually what you need to get into the yoke. What keeps you out of the yoke is the pride that says, I don't need this, this isn't for me, um, I, I can do this on my own. Or maybe that, well, that's for kind of like super Christians, but I'm content just being who I am. I don't really need that. But pride can also manifest itself in a more subtle and pernicious form as well that we don't always recognize. And that is a pride that says, God owes me. I work hard. I deserve a good life. I have a college degree. I deserve a good job. I live a decently moral life. I deserve, God, why haven't you given me the house, career, marriage, scholarship, whatever it is you fill in the blank that I deserve? And, and you see an attitude of entitlement, however subtle, and, and we usually aren't quite so explicit as all of that when we think through it, but it's sort of back there subconsciously working. Any attitude of entitlement like that will keep us out of the yoke will leave you looking, always longing for something else. And in the end, it will make you embittered toward the God who never gave you what you think he owed you. We have to have a humility that says, God, you've revealed yourself to me. And that alone is, is a gift and, an, and enough more than I ever deserved. So humble yourself. Next, get yoked. In the early days of Christ's community, we used to say that a lot, get yoked. And maybe it's a good thing we don't say that as much anymore because people think we're talking about like, throwing eggs at you or something. But 
step into the yoke, begin to train with Jesus. This is where the spiritual disciplines, and perhaps even a, a better, more apt name, is, is habits of grace come in. Habits of grace, such as reading scripture, praying, belonging to a church community. And it's, it's through the habits of grace that we step into the yoke with Jesus and begin to train with him. And, and there's a mystery here because grace, by definition, is a gift. It's fundamentally and always opposed to earning. Grace is always opposed to earning because what grace is, is an unmerited gift, something you didn't deserve that you could never earn. But that doesn't mean that it's opposed to effort. And far from it, in fact, grace actually empowers our efforts to learn from Jesus and to begin to become like him. Pastor and author David Mathis points out that, that grace makes us active, not passive. Have you ever thought about that? What is the result of grace in your life? Does it make you passive? Does it, does it sort of put you in a mindset of, I'm just going to turn on a movie, get some potato chips, and sit on the couch for 12 hours and hope somehow I become more like Jesus? Does grace make you active or passive? When grace comes alive in your life, what is the result? Act, activity or passivity? No, grace, when it enters, it makes us active, not passive. The, the way to receive, this is what Matthew says, he says, the way to receive the gift of God's empowering our actions is to do the actions. The way to receive the gift of God's empowering our actions is to do the actions. If he gives us the grace, the gift of effort, we receive that gift by expending the effort. One of the many undeserved gifts of grace is the gift of activeness, of effort, of training. The question is, will we receive it? Not as a means in and of itself, but as a way of enjoying and rejoicing in and treasuring Jesus. And this is the the third point, the last one, because that's the point to delight in Jesus. Because the disciplines, these habits of grace, they are never ends in and of themselves. And when they do become ends in themselves, and as they so often do in our lives, and they become means of earning God's favor in order to make him bless us, to try to manipulate him into if I just do my quiet times and I pray and I read my Bible, that somehow then God will do things for me because of that as they, we so easily can slip into that mindset, if that's what they become, they become nothing more than heavy burdens that crush us in an unbearable yoke of religion. But when they're aimed at enjoying Jesus, they become liberating instruments of joy, of true life, of a satisfaction at the deepest level that quiets that persistent voice that says, I need something else. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, too often we see obedience as simply a way to avoid danger and have a good life, not a way to love and know Jesus. Too often we see obedience as simply a way to avoid danger and have a good life, not a way to love and know Jesus. Man, how often do I look at obedience as simply a way to avoid trouble in my life and to have a good life? 
rather than seen as the way, the way to actually come to know in and delight in and love Jesus. See, obedience is never just about avoiding danger and having a good life, though it is a pathway to that, certainly. It's about knowing and loving Jesus. You see, the disciplines aren't about getting God to love us or bless us. He has already loved and blessed us to the nth degree in and through Jesus Christ. He can't bless you any more than he already has in giving Jesus to you. Rather, the disciplines are making the reality of the love and acceptance and blessing that are ours in Jesus come alive in our hearts in ways that transform our approach to everything. The, the disciplines aren't about getting us into the, the gospel or somehow earning grace, but they're about working the gospel more deeply, deeply into every part of our life so it completely transforms everything. You see, the great goal in life is not to accomplish great things, but to become the apprentice of a great person. The great goal in life is not to accomplish great things, but to become the apprentice of a great person. You see, Jesus is both gift and example. Someone we receive without any kind of earning or effort, but simply because he's revealed himself and offered himself to us, and also one whom we strive with all effort to follow and obey in every way. But here's the thing. You can only have Jesus as your example if you first receive him as a gift. You can only have Jesus as your example if you first receive him as a gift because if you only try to have Jesus as your example, if you say, I'm just going to open up the gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and look at how Jesus lived and I'm going to try to live just like that without first receiving him as a gift, then his example will crush you. It'll become a yoke that there's no way you can bear. But if you first receive Jesus as a gift, as one who has loved you, not because of anything you've done, but simply because he made you, not because of anything in you, but because of everything in him, if you receive him as a gift in that way, then you can receive his invitation to come into the yoke and begin to learn from him. Only when you have received Jesus' as gift, then and only then can you begin to have him as your example. Few have put this better than the 18th century Scottish preacher Ralph Erskine, who says, A rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, denying straw. But when with gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Let me read that again. A rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, denying straw. But when with gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Jesus has come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and I will give you rest for your souls. Come to him and receive from him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm grateful that you have revealed these things to us, that you have not hidden yourself. I pray this morning that whether 
we've been following you for a really long time, or maybe we're just beginning to sort of catch glimpses of what that could mean for us. That we would see afresh the beauty, the magnitude of what you're inviting us to in the yoke. And supremely, the one who invites us. Would we come to you? Would you humble us when we find rest in the yoke? In Jesus' name, amen.